0: All right, we are on part five, part five of this study in political theology, and we really have tons more that we could go through, and very well may, I don't know, Uh, I guess we'll see, but um, I'm not, these really are building on each other quite a bit, so I'm kind of picking up each time right where we left off, so if any of this doesn't make sense, then it's probably just because we're picking up right on something that we talked about last time. Uh, we have disavowed formal theonomy, or at least argued against it in this study. Formal theonomy, we've uh, advocated for a position that I've called general equity, general equity confessionalism, which is the idea that uh, the general equity, the basic principles of justice and morality present in the Mosaic civil laws have applicability and are helpful for um, civil law in our own day and age, but that we don't apply the moral law in and of itself or call for that. Uh, we've also acknowledged that there's been a watering down of the term theonomy, and uh, mostly that's because of people using the etymology of the word theos, meaning law, and um, or God, and namas, meaning law, so God's law, and they just say, well, it just means God's law, and everybody essentially is a theonomist in that sense. Um, so I, think that, I I think that's very much a watering down of the actual term. Um, so I've made that argument. Um, I, I say that's an error. Um, but people have started using that term a little bit in spite of the fact that they're actually probably a little bit closer to our position of general equity confessionalism. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, they're not legit, formal theonomists in the classical sense at the least. Um, so, just because somebody uses that term, they may not be what we think they are. You really need to get a lot of definition. Um, with that, though, with saying we're not theonomist, we, we do face the accusation that we don't believe the state must submit to Jesus Christ. And um, we've already sought to refute that a bit, saying, yes, the state does have to submit to Jesus Christ, but their submission to Jesus Christ does not look the same as the church's submission to Jesus Christ. Our position is that the state's submission to Jesus Christ does not make it look like the church or as if it's enforcing the same things as the church, and it doesn't have the job of elevating possible true churches over false churches. Uh, It's not even there, the state does not have the task of even validating Christianity as the one true religion even. So there's no submission to Jesus Christ in the realm of the state doesn't call for a Christian state. Their submission to Christ means that they are to be a minister or a deacon of good for God or minister of God or or deacon of God for good so that evildoers fear punishment and thus they should punish evildoers and they should praise people that are doing good. Praise of good, punishment of evil. That's their general job. However, we don't say that we want them punishing every single possible evil. And I think everybody essentially says that to some degree. Um, We don't want them restricting the religious practice of false religions even. So we would draw the line back before even a determination of true and false religion. Uh, They, we don't call for the state. To restrict religious practice of false religions like judaism islam even romanism buddhism any of this nor do we want them praising every possible good we don't want them making determinations of good on every possible thing such as um, when it's a good thing to leave a false church and join a good church you know they the, the government shouldn't step up and give a tax credit every time somebody becomes a member of a Reformed Baptist Church. As good as that is, and it's great, you know, the state doesn't have that role. They, they don't need to be praising every possible good. We don't want them taking a position or publishing any works on things like credo-baptism versus pato baptism We don't want them uh, giving greater tax breaks for Baptists just because we get baptism, right, and Presbyterians don't, and therefore, you know, they don't get as good a tax breaks or something. We don't want them to make that level of determination of good. Uh, We don't even want them to do that for churches over synagogues or mosques. In spite of the fact that we say synagogues and mosques are wrong. It's religious evil, right? These are places where the deity of Jesus Christ is denied. And we say, no, the state should not make the determination that that is evil and punish that kind of evil doing. We believe that they should simply stay out of religion entirely. And that is within reason, of course. You know, people can't just make up religions and say, well, my religion is to, uh, you know, sneak heroin over the border from Mexico. You know, that's a religious worship exercise for me, you know. Uh, or even human sacrifice, right? There's religions that have historically practiced human sacrifices. somebody tried to revive paganism and bring back human sacrifices, we don't say, well, it's their religion, the state has to stay out of it. No, we're not saying that. So, and we'll get back to that more uh, later, but yes, we would say that the state should make no distinction between any house of worship. And that is what their submission to Jesus Christ looks like, not making a distinction between houses of worship. And that seems kind of weird to say of their submission to Christ calls for them not to call out the evil of denying Jesus Christ in a house of worship. But yeah, that is the case. Because it's not their job. He doesn't have that job for them. And, and people will be thrown off by that. Like, how can submitting to Jesus Christ look like that? Where uh, they the state gives the same status to a church that teaches the true gospel as it does a false church that teaches a false gospel as it does a synagogue that says Jesus is not Lord, that Jesus is not Yahweh, Jesus is not the Son of God. The, church, the, the state makes no distinction. How can submission to Jesus Christ look like that? And I would say... Uh, Jesus would not have them to make that distinction. That's why. He would not have them to do it, not because it's not right or wrong, but because it's not their job. He didn't give them that job. It is not their role that He has established for them. Discipling the nations or the peoples of the world to obey Jesus Christ is the role of the church, and it's not the role of the state. Therefore, to make those sort of determinations is simply outside of their purview. It'd be the same as some if somebody accused a woman well uh well women don't preach the gospel in churches at, over the pulpit therefore they're not serving jesus christ in the church and be like no it's just not their job to do that therefore they don't and they're not being disobedient for not doing it it's just not their role to be in the pulpit or pastoring churches so that accusation is false against women and it's the same with people that make that accusation against the church of well they're not submitting to Christ because they're not elevating true churches no it's just not their job to elevate true churches they're not failing to submit to Christ by doing that it's just not their role that he's established for them so does that mean then that we are advocates of separation of church and state that depends how that is meant I would say it very much depends on what it means in terms of how it's been popularly conceived in our modern American culture just of recent years? Absolutely not. We're not in favor of that at all, because it's a radical separation. It's not what we're called for. That carries all kinds of con- connotations that are, frankly, ridiculous and way, way overly restrictive. Any mention of religion, or particularly Christianity, is deemed to be an establishment of religion, which is it's just ridiculous. So no, we're not, we're not in favor of that. I actually prefer the nomenclature of distinction between church and state. They're separate, they're not separate, but they are distinct. Now, that's not in our Constitution. It doesn't say anything about that. It's taken from a letter by Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, later, where that wall of separation language comes from, and it's kind of read back into the Constitution um, Not meaning that it's impossible for it to be there, but I would say we believe in a distinction between church and state and a separation of church and state. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody says separation of church and state is necessarily wrong. Um, I think there's ways of using that phraseology that is probably okay. Um, It just depends. Um, and, And most modern conceptualizations of that idea are beyond, I think, what scripture would even call for. Church and state serve as complementary roles to one another. And it's not like boss and employee. It's, it's not like that. It, 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 neither is in subjection to the other. They're more like co workers, and the boss is Jesus Christ. They're both in subjection to Jesus Christ, but they don't have the same job. So they're not supposed to be stepping on each other's toes, and they're supposed to stay in their lane. Uh, and that's, for the most part, that's what we'd say. Stay in your lane, do the job that's established for you, and don't try and do a job that's not established for you. If each is doing their job the right way, then there's really not much of a problem. Um, it's funny, america or not Americans, but people tend to use the other for the wrong thing. They step on each other's toes <coughs> because people messed them up. That's why there's always a problem. The state shouldn't, for instance, support an established church by taxing the population. They should not do that. Nor should they support the population by taxing the church either, though. They shouldn't. Churches shouldn't be taxed. All that money that goes to a church has already been taxed. There should be no tax for going to church. There shouldn't be fines for absenting uh, oneself from church either. Some of our Puritan father- forefathers did get this wrong. Some got it right, but I would probably say less got it right. I think, maybe, from my reading some wanted an established church that was supported by taxes because they saw the the church as a good for society. And it is, and that's right, that's true. It is good for society. It's good for the world. It's good for people. But they wanted an established church supported by taxes for that, but also with religious toleration. So it's like you have an established church, but the culture and the government is religiously tolerant. And they thought, well, okay, this protects... And provides and protects liberty for everyone. Which, okay, yeah, it sort of does. But I think where they get that wrong is if the state is granting permission for religious dissent by saying, okay, that is all right, We have an established church. Your religious dissent is okay. There is an implied power there to revoke that permission. And that's why that is still a problem. And once that liberty is breached once that liberty for religious dissent or non-practice of religion or whatever, once they breach that line of liberty, there's no logical or consistent stopping point, in my opinion. If the state is to enforce religiosity in any sense due to the fact that it is their job to punish evil, and because false religion is evil, then it has to determine what is the true religion. If they're going to step in that realm, they're faced with that dilemma. Because in the religious realm, there is good and there is evil. And here they are with the job to punish evil. And if they've stepped into there, they're going to be having to determine what's evil, what's good. And that's a problem. And once it's involved in religion, it has to determine what is the true church. Because the true church determines what is evil and what is good. Because worshiping in a false church is evil. So they have to determine the right religion and then the right churches within that religion. And once it's determining what a true church is, then it has to likewise determine what is right doctrine and practice. Because wrong doctrine and practice is evil. It is still sin. False doctrine, unbiblical practices are sinful, even when it's a genuine misunderstanding of the biblical text. It's still technically sin. So consistency would demand that if religious evil is to be punished by the state, then it must make a determination on pretty much every significant doctrinal question. There's no logical stopping point that prevents them because it's got to be determined. They've, they've stepped out of their realm into a realm they're not supposed to be in, and then there's good and evil in that realm. And if that prospect makes you throw up in your mouth a little bit, the idea of the government coming in and trying to figure out what's true and false doctrine, then yeah, you get it. Uh, that's a huge problem. That would be a massive problem. The state would be, in effect, practicing church discipline at that point. They'd be determining true and false doctrine practices. They, they would either side with the Presbyterians or the Pato Baptists or the, the Credo Baptists, one of the two, who's doing the practice of baptism right because the one that's not is in sin. That's evil. It's their job to punish evil. You see the problem here? So suddenly the Inquisition doesn't seem so far-fetched anymore. You can see where it came from. It's not like these people were radical. It's just that this is the logical conclusion of having the state in the religious realm. You can't get away from it. You naturally will be drawn into that level of determination. And yes, that is taking it to extremes, but that is the argument, that there's no logical stopping point. There's no reasonable stopping point. Now, I will admit this. I think I would have a hard time implementing... This level of liberty where you let all houses of worship exist. I think I would have a hard time implementing that in reformational England reformational Europe in general. I would have a hard time implementing it towards the Roman church even especially at that point but I do think there is a legitimate reason for that. The Roman Catholic church at that time was more than a religious body. It wasn't just houses of worship they were an amalgam of a religious body fused with a civil body—they were way out of their realm too—and heavily influencing. I mean, that's why people got put to death for heresy. Now, the church said they didn't do it themselves, but they're instructing the government on who to do that—who who to uh, uh, put to death for heresy—and thus, the Roman Catholic Church, in that context, at that point, is a genuine threat to the true liberty of others. So, I think it would have to be restricted until it got back into its location in the religious realm. In the same way, and this is a little different, because Islam itself is a socio-civil religious system, again, not just religious, but social and civil, it can and should be restricted by the state because it does purposely, intentionally restrict the liberty of others. It attempts to cross over into the civil realm. It's Part of its design. It's not just a religion like Christianity. It's an entire social civil system. Now, the Roman Catholic Church used to do that, but Islam itself is built on that. It's built into it. It's not like they made an error. It's like, if you keep Islam correctly, that's what it is. And it's far more than just a different religion. Uh, And I don't mean to exonerate Protestantism here from ever having made this mistake, but it did emerge in the midst of years and years and years of sacralism, where you know the church and state are conflated. So Protestantism emerges out of that, and they suddenly have to survive. Uh, it's 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 a sort of like a tiger by the tail situation. You can't really let go of the tiger until you've solved this problem of what happens if you let go of the tiger, right? And there, um, Protestant emerges, Protestantism emerges in the midst of sacralism when there's religious wars happening to end them and to take away that liberty of those nations. So they have to defend themselves in these religious wars and defend their people and defend the right to practice that religion. And no one should have the expectation that it's going to get cleaned up immediately, Right? Powerful monarchs are here, many of whom were never even truly converted anyway, and they have no desire and they have no motivation to restrict state control to its appropriate levels. There's not like kings in Europe being like, yeah, I see this distinction, and you know what? Here, take this power that I have right now, and you, you do it. It's yours. You do what you're supposed to do with it, and I'll just restrict myself here. No, that doesn't happen. People aren't like that, especially secular unconverted rulers. So it took Protestantism a few hundred years to correct a basically a millennia of error that they emerged out of. And I don't mean to say that Protestantism is new on the scene. It's a recovery of a truth that was essentially buried. So I, I'm not saying that Protestantism is a new doctrine or anything. But we can't get into this, that level of detail in church history. So the evil that the state must punish in terms of religion is... Any body, body, any body, whether it's an individual body, a uh, like an individual person, or a religious body or a secular body, they are to restrict or punish any body that seeks to prevent another individual from freely choosing and practicing divine worship. I think that's a, the most general and generic way to say it. You could say this, uh, anybody that seeks to take away someone else's religious liberty. That's where the state should step in and be like, you can't do that, and we will punish that evil. The state must protect liberty, so that, of course, means protecting every life. Now, obviously, they're supposed to protect life in and of itself, but this is also a consequence of religious liberty. This would absolutely not protect every so-called religion. Pagans could not reinstate child sacrifice on religious grounds. They, they could have a historical precedent, uh, precedent that uh, we're going to reinstate Moloch worship. It's like, yep, yeah, you can do that. And they're going to say, and part of that is child, child sacrifice. And we'll say, historically, yes, that's a fact. And if you try that, we will put you to death. That's what the state should say. They should not validate that because what are they doing when they sacrifice a child? They're stealing that child's liberty to practice religious worship. So it's a religious uh, it's a violation of religious liberty on top of obviously the natural law that they're taking the life so any human sacrifice any abortion even you can, you can justify it even on abortion can, uh, is or should be restricted here it should be punished not just because it's murder which it is and should be punished on that case but because it also takes away the individual's ability to freely practice their religion and if you kill a baby, that baby can't practice the religion. It can't grow up, make a decision, and practice religion freely. You're stealing their liberty. And the one being sacrificed can't practice divine worship if they're dead. That much is obvious. And the, the right would have been taken away from them by some murderous religion. So it doesn't, it doesn't make any and every religious practice viable. So the state are not to promote true religion over false, but they should stop any so-called religion that takes liberty to practice divine worship. Individuals, if they do those sorts of things, will have to take that up with Christ when he returns, whether or not they're practicing true and false religion. Not the state. They shouldn't have to take it up with the state and justify their religion to the state. They have to take it up with Christ when he returns, and they 'll face the consequences of practicing religious evil if, if it 's heresy, if it 's false religion they 'll die for that, and they 'll have to take it up with him. So if the state promotes liberty, even religious liberty, then does that leave society vulnerable that 's going to be the accusation that 's the concern of the theonomist, right like Wait, if we if we implement this, society becomes vulnerable, very vulnerable here. If if the state is not promoting a godly society through promotion of a true church or true religion, then couldn't this society fall into moral chaos and collapse under the weight of its own depravity? Couldn't that happen? Yeah. Yep. Can and does and will continue to do so and that's happened over and over and over in history, repeatedly, and it's not going to stop, and our own country is on the trajectory to do just that. Yes. The state's job is not to implement a system where that is not going to happen. That's not the state's job. The state's job is not to protect people from their own sin. If God sees fit to turn a people over to his wrath, then so be it. He will at times give sinners over to the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, where society becomes futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts are darkened. That happens. He does that. They are given over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to degrading passions, to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And it sounded, I just, that's just Romans 1. I just, that's the essential essence of Romans 1, 18 through 32, describing people that do that. And what does Paul say? They receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It's not the state's job to step in and see like, hey, if we let this happen, they're going to receive this due penalty of error and we have to protect them from that. We have to protect society from receiving the due penalty of their error. No. They leave the people vulnerable to receive the due penalty of their error and they will. He's not talking about the state punishing them there. Paul's not saying oh, the state is going to punish people that do these things. No, he's talking about God pouring out his wrath on them by turning them over to their own debauchery. And their own debauchery leads to awful things and death. That is societal collapse. Romans 1 is essentially describing societal collapse, and it is not the job of the state to prevent it. In fact, they technically pave the way for it because... It is their job to protect the liberty to not worship God. They protect religious liberty to worship or not worship God, to worship right rightly or worship God wrongly. They protect the right for people to screw it up or to get it right. And because they protect the right to not worship God, they protect the right for these people to have the wrath of God poured out on them or the consequence of that. They they must see that no one compels an individual to worship or believe rightly. The state can't compel that. So technically, they are to maintain the possibility of Romans 1 happening to every nation. The state, when it submits itself to Christ, makes it possible for Romans 1 to happen to a country or a nation or a society. It's the church's job then to preach and to teach and to evangelize rightly in hopes that the Spirit of God uses that work to prevent such levels of depravity. In some places he's done that. In some places, it's futile, and the people are turned over, and they collapse. The point is, though, there is no argument along the lines of, you know, but if the state allows this level of religious liberty, then uh, such and such bad thing can happen. Or, you know, the whole society can, can suffer under these consequences. It could collapse. Everyone might pursue their sexual perversions, and everything will turn into chaos. Like, yeah, I know, yes. That's right, but that's not a reason for the state to overstep its bounds. It's not worth it anyway. So yeah, it might happen. It could happen. There's no assurances built into the proper function of either the church or state that guarantees that this will never happen. There's no guarantee there. When you do it right, it doesn't, it doesn't mean like, okay, we've done everything right. Society shouldn't collapse here. No, it's not built in. The goal is not to get the state of civil rule where things can't go off the rails where it's an impossibility the state's job is to protect the freedom where the quality of society will actually only be a symptom of what the people are worshiping so right religious worship will lead to a pretty good society and wrong religion, religious worship or the lack of worship is going to lead to societal collapse If a society does not worship God rightly and they practice wickedness, then the state should not be there to save them from their consequences. It should be left to collapse. There's no big bailout from the state. There should be no big bailout. Let me me cite from Judges, since we're in Judges. Let me use that. On Sundays, we're preaching through Judges. If a nation is made up of unbelievers and they insist on doing whatever is right in their own eyes, like it says in Judges over and over, they should... Into cycles of oppression and chaos, just like we see in Judges. That should happen. That's a natural consequence, and there shouldn't be a state there to protect them from that. Or a state powerful enough to protect them from that. The state shouldn't be there calling them back to repentance and worship of Jesus Christ. The church should be there doing that, but the state doesn't have the job to do that. So it all depends on the sovereignty of God. Everything will depend on the sovereignty of God. And the state should reflect that even in the way that it is structured. If that makes sense. The, the society should be left vulnerable. How they respond to the church. The state provides the liberty for them to respond to the church rightly or wrongly. And then it all depends on the sovereignty of God. In the way that it is structured. It's all dependent on the spirit of God. Just like Jesus says in John 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone born of the spirit. Societies will be a reflection of people born of the spirit or not. The church should be left to compete in the marketplace of religious ideas. It doesn't need the state as training wheels or extra protection or a cheat code for them to get a leg up in the marketplace of religious ideas. And if the church does its job, then Christ will use it. If they do their job, Christ will use it. If they heed the warnings given to the seven churches in Revelation, for instance, and they acknowledge their vulnerability to have their lampstand removed, if they leave their first love, if they disobey, if they don't preach the gospel, then they know they're not going to endure. So they'll continue to do the right thing. And it will win in the marketplace of religious ideas because the church actually has the truth. And it has the Spirit of God ministering effectual grace through its doctrine and practice. That's why we don't seek secular power because we're not dependent on or need secular power in any sense to make the church grow or for truth to prevail because we have the spirit of God working and we actually have the truth on its side and we rely on that. We don't need the, the state stepping in and being like, hey, you, you can do whatever you want, but you get tax breaks if you go and follow this religion or there's fines if you go to a mosque and a synagogue. No, none of that. It will win in the marketplace of religious ideas because we have the truth and we have the spirit of God. A society largely made up of and influenced by those that are born of the spirit, if the spirit moves, the wind blows where it wills, if the spirit moves through a society of people and they are largely born of the spirit, then they're going to have a government that largely reflects godly ideals or protects the liberty of people. And the only thing that can protect from oppression by the state or protect from chaos that comes from the depravity of being turned over is a society that's been largely influenced by and made up of those born of the Spirit. That's the solution to it. It only comes from God's blessing. And if they don't If they aren't blessed by God, then they'll do whatever is right in their own eyes and it'll be chaotic and it'll be oppressive. One of the two. It goes one one of two ways. Society being held together then or being a tolerable place to live is a blessing from God and it comes through Christians. It comes through the spirit working by making people Christians to raise up and create that society. Much of the world now is only tolerable because it's still functioning on the foundations that were laid by Christians and biblical principles. So most, most of Western society, Western culture, is built on those principles, and some they're adhering to, but they're quickly eroding them. And they're doing so intentionally. You know, the U.S., Canada, Europe, if they continue to follow their trajectories, they're going to eventually become intolerable. And what I mean by intolerable is so overly oppressive. Like, in England, you can get arrested. Arrested for posting uh, Facebook memes of making fun of the wrong people. That's borderline intolerable. Canada's well on their way, too. So it's either going to be like a a third world country or it's going to be a totalitarian state. Those are kind of your two options. Those those are the, the two pitfalls that you fall into. It'll be maybe some liberty but in the midst of severe chaos, like a third world country where there's, there's no order and it's so chaotic that it's intolerable, or there's going to be a lot of order, but that order comes from oppression, a, a huge bureaucratic state that runs everything. Severe oppression. So then, I'm saying those are the two dangers when basically the, the, the society is not influenced by and, and made up of believers. So let me address the anticipated objection after that explanation. It sounds like maybe I'm advocating for a radical libertarianism. For instance, the, the, you know, the, the state should just recognize any kind of marriage at all, just like they recognize any kind of state, any kind of, or any kind of church, any kind of uh, religion. So just any kind of marriage. But no, that's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that's a necessary consequence at all. It's not a necessary conclusion. Marriage is between a single man and woman. That's what it is. It's always been that. It always will be that. The state has no ontological power. It can't make it other than what it is. They can say it's something else, but they can't make it something else. That is what marriage is, regardless of what anyone says. And let's assume for the sake of argument that the state had a reason to, say, make a pronouncement on marriage legitimacy in some form or fashion. All right? They don't have to recognize, nor should they, any kind of new kind or new definition of marriage. They can't change what the institution itself is just because they allow for any kind of religion and, they have, and they're in a position to recognize marriage. They can either recognize it for what it is or they can ignore it entirely as if it's not even a, a, a status that's recognized by the, the state. It makes no difference. So you either recognize marriage for a man and a woman or... It's not marriage at all, right? However, if some, say, foolish liberal church wants to pretend that gay marriage is real and it performs gay weddings, so-called gay weddings, then the state shouldn't try and stop them from doing that. That's their religious error that they are free to fall into. They should be allowed by the state to apostatize in that way and have their lampstand removed. They seek to be a true church. They're not protected from themselves. They're not protected from heresy by the state saying, no, that's evil. The state shouldn't recognize those as real marriages. The churches do them, but the state doesn't say, okay, because you did that and you're, you're allowed to do it. That doesn't mean they're forced to say, yeah, that's a marriage. They don't recognize those as real marriages, and the reason is because words have meanings. Because marriage is what it is, and they can't change what it is. Same goes for all, that, all the gender stuff, Right? People are free to destroy their own lives in that way. They are free to pretend that reality is something than what it is. You can't stop people from that sort of idiocy, being turned over in foolish darkening of their minds, just like is said in Romans 1. So, liberal churches and false churches are allowed to champion that fake gender stuff. They can make it whatever they want, they can pretend a man is a woman. Just like synagogues are allowed to pretend that Jesus isn't Yahweh, or mosque can pretend that Muhammad is a prophet, they're allowed to do that. The state's not, it's not their job to stop them. But the state can't change what a man or a woman is just because these bad churches do it. So it doesn't, just because that is allowed doesn't mean that the state has to respond to that and change meanings of words. It doesn't change natural law. Those are set definitions fundamentally determined by biology. So it is what it is. Every time the state changes those definitions of words and gets away with it, such as in the case of gender or gay marriage, and I say gets away with it because people are not stopping them by voting people out that do it. They get away with it. Every time they, they does that, that is, an, that is an indication that society as a whole has for the most part been turned over to the wrath of God. And that's a scary thing because it's happening in our country. People are not stopping them. And our society has, we're seeing the beginnings of Romans 1 happen in our society, being turned over to the wrath of God. And that's scary. So the solution to our current crisis is not a theocratic state. It is large-scale repentance. It's truth. It's revival. That's how you solve our problem. And if that does happen, at which point that would happen, as a result of widespread biblical literacy, society would then return to a biblical worldview. They'd get rid of the people, the politicians, that, that make up and pretend words have different meanings than they are. They would get rid of them, and they would implement people with good understandings of natural law and their job. And as a result of that, they would stop electing foolish people you know, to public office. And as a result of that, the state would then shrink back to its role that it's supposed to be in and it would resume its recognition of the definitions and resume its recognition of nature and the basic principles of rational thinking. And as a result of that, the state would resume its proper role and its proper function. And as a result of that, if it happened, the theocratic state wouldn't be necessary anyway because the state would be back in its proper role. But that would only come from wide-scale repentance and revival. That's the solution, but none of that will probably ever happen, and we're going to descend into a despotic totalitarian state where the church shines brighter than ever before because the world around us will be as dark as it's ever been, and the state will grow to a mammoth proportion, and... It'll be used to try and stamp out the church and then persecution is going to be borderline intolerable because the state is the beast of revelation and we're going to cling tighter to Christ than we have ever done before. And just before it seems like the church will finally be destroyed, Christ will return and the church will reign triumphant with him and the state will lose and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's probably what's going to happen. But maybe not, I don't know. I'm not a prophet or the son of the prophet. It's my prediction. But either way, I do know this. Either way. Our job in the church remains the same. It really does. We preach Christ alone is the only way of salvation. If the Spirit seems fit, sees fit to use that and change enough people in society, then great. We'll li- live in more peaceable times. And if he doesn't, if he, if he chooses to turn it over to the wrath of God, then we'll go down preaching and suffering the whole way and we'll just win in the end. No matter what, that is how it plays out in the end. We win. The church wins when Christ returns. So we don't need a theocratic state to do that. We need the Spirit of God to grant repentance. It's a little bit shorter, which was the goal, ideally. Um, any questions about that and my ridiculous prediction? Very. Has any government practiced what I just suggested? There's probably very, very brief snippets when they were transitioning from an oppressive state to sacralism. There might be very narrow windows where they kind of did it and got pretty close, where it's like, okay, Christianity is a tolerable religion amongst others, but then it quickly became oh, no, no, this is the religion of the empire. Um,
1: even during the Reformation,
0: I mean, they, well, they kind of had to be, it looks like they're persecuting Romanism, but Romanism was not just, hey, let us worship. It was like, hey, this needs to be a Roman Catholic state. You know, those, what are those Guy, Guy Fox masks that everybody wears the V for Vendetta masks, you know, and they wear them as like a sign of rebellion against the state. That was a Roman Catholic conspirator putting absurd amounts of dynamite and, and gunpowder below parliament to blow it up to turn it back to a Roman Catholic state. That was the goal of that guy. That a real guy. That, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a real plot. Was it called the gunpowder plot? Is that the same thing? If you go read up on him, that, that was what the actual plot was. So they wear those. It's just like, it's just like liberals that wear the, uh, the Che Guevara shirts. And it's like, you know how much he hated gays, right? Like he killed them. It's the same is true the people that wear those masks as if they're rebellious. And like, you know he, he was trying to implement a Roman state, right? He was trying to persecute a bunch of, yeah. So even there, you know, they're, they're like anti-Roman Catholic, but it's like they were anti-Roman Catholic because Roman Catholics were anti-Protestant. And they're going to try and put them to death and persecute them. There's, no, there's no, like, no one's really, I think Baptists deserve some credit here. Because they were pushing for religious liberty, like genuine religious liberty. But probably not even to the level that I'm saying here. Because everybody saw some radical cults that were like, okay, except for them. And a lot of them were dangerous. So there has to be an evaluation. By the state of of a religion that it seeks to take away other people's liberty and violates natural law. But it's really, really hard to stop the state right there and stop saying this church is true, church, this church, this is a false religion. So, probably not outside of just like happenstance almost.
1: What's the difference? Classical
0: theonomies, if you want to call that, um, their view of religious control over the social civil realm versus that of Islam's. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, the question, if you're listening online, is in, what is the difference between classical theonomy's view of the social realm and religious control versus Islam's? That is a good question. Islam is pretty explicit in laying it out in their literature because they have a lot of literature, um, like the Hadith literature that goes along with the Quran. It's not all in the Quran, but in the sayings of Muhammad that were recorded or said to be recorded. Um, I would only say that Islam is probably a little bit more explicit, but it's still all case law, whereas theonomy feel like they have more legwork to to explain their, and justify their implementation of Mosaic Law and that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: Um, on that quote case law yeah. in order to it into our
0: social civil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Islam would have stuff like honor killings and they could justify that. Uh, but in a sense, if you're implementing the death penalty like you could or should from Mosaic Law, that's for apostasy, the death penalty can apply. So it, it, it might look very similar in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that to make them look bad, but they're fairly, they could be close. They could be really close, other than the particulars. The principles are still very, very similar. It's a religious, social, civil system that's, that seeks to Christianize the world versus Islamize the world. So yeah. That's a good question. So, I question? Yeah. I was going to ask earlier in the answer about how the state should interact with same-sex marriage and children. So you're the
1: state should oppose
0: it? They shouldn't oppose churches doing it. They have the freedom to do it religiously, but they shouldn't recognize it civilly. So
1: it's a symbol that, right? I
0: mean, yeah, it goes against so natural it's law. Right, 100%. It literally changes the definitions of words. A man is literally no longer a man. A woman is no longer a woman. Marriage is no longer marriage. It makes it become... Because, because think about, uh, now that they've done this with marriage, you can marry any gender. And they, a man and woman basically are of a fluid definition. There's no logical stopgap between throuples and and, and multiple people getting married. The only reason for two people being involved in marriage is because of the dichotomy of the sexes, which they now deny, and now inevitably and eventually it'll be pushed into court cases where it's like you can't stop three men or four men or however many men or women you want from all being married to each other because marriage doesn't have a foundational Definition any longer because they've abandoned it. And if it's that, then why can't it be horses or dogs or a lamp? How how does that work for like for instance I think it's Title IX, is that right? Title Nine, There's yeah. Discrimination against individuals. Like how, how do you think the state I guess, should interact with that? Would there be protections for people? It depends what you mean by protections. Because they say, like, by restricting gay marriage, you're taking away their right to get married. And like, nope, they're allowed to get... They can, a man can marry any woman, and a woman can marry any man. That's the same right I have, and the gay person has that right. They just choose not to exercise it because of their sexual proclivities. But neither him nor I have the right to marry someone of the same gender. Um, so it depends what you mean by that. Or what, and that's really... Yeah. Yeah. uh, I think it was initially implemented to, you know, prevent companies from hiring a man just because they didn't want to hire a woman. And now it's being expanded to, oh, you don't want to hire an axe murderer, you bigot? You know, there's no logical stopping point to that. Oh, you're against pedophiles, you big jerk? Why can't a pedophile work at your daycare? You think there's something wrong with him? Yeah, I do. He's a pedophile. It's wrong in and of itself, so... Uh, they 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 've eliminated the the possibilities of that sort of distinction though because they 're broadening it uh, for the, they 're trying to read into all that language any sexual proclivities any perversion and you know, well the gender stuff too it 's read into that what they initially said as sex, all they meant by that is man versus woman, but now it 's being pretty much anything at all, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's everything. I'm just curious. So when we say that the government shouldn't say that churches shouldn't have gay marriage, uh, whatever, don't you think that, that could be looked at know. as just like, whatever your definition of, of general is? Um, because, uh, the reason why I'm asking is so if it's if it's very dogmatic in the theonomic realm. You're saying kind of dogmatic things. The should not be, the government Yeah. Should not, should not be that. Yeah. I'm curious. Like, I guess where's the literature behind that, or where's the biblical backing behind? The church should, kind of, the state should never say that a church should not allow this. When general equity in and of itself, would be a very ambiguous term.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, because yeah, you're not gonna, you're not gonna go find this sort of thing laid out piece by piece of like here but not here, this law but not this law, this principle but not that principle. Um, but I think they're in that same boat. Uh, I've never met a theonomist that, that takes it to all of its logical conclusions. They always stop somewhere short, and I've never understood why, necessarily, necessarily. Um, because you're still so going yeah. um, I'm trying to think of how to word it because I, I don't think it's it's not explicit in scripture but I think it is a biblical understanding of what the church is supposed to do allows us to interpolate and extrapolate our role And we have a very narrow description of what the state is supposed to do where it just says, punish evildoers. It's like, okay, well, does that mean religious evil? Because religious evil includes every false practice and every false doctrine and every false church and every false religion. Is the state supposed to punish that? And I haven't met a theonomist that says yes on all those things yet. So I see them in the same boat of needing to interpolate where the state stops in those practices. Everybody has to do that same thing. Um, So there's not a debate of whether or not that has to happen. It's just a question of, how we do make that happen I guess uh, there's, there's no there's nothing in scripture that says the state should implement a Christian nation so they just get that from well the Great Commission says disciple the nations and that means make Christian nations and we're saying literally it doesn't say that it says uh, disciple the ethnicities the peoples all people and it, 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 it's going to like if you split there everything else falls into place. If you see that as make these governments Christian governments, everything else is like a necessary conclusion from that. And if we see it as tell everyone to be a Christian all over the entire world, that restricts the role of the church and and focuses us on evangelization and I think is more in line with the church's role. Um, and, And then I think you also have to look at Jesus' interaction with the Roman government there. How do you not see that as him mimicking the kind of suffering we should expect to endure at the hands of evil governments and still just preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God but not pushing for radical law changes and not that, it just seems so out of character, out of alignment with the literal mission of Christ. So, there's no there's no denying that it takes wisdom to see the principles, but I think everybody's in the same boat trying to do that. But yeah, it would be a whole lot easier if it was explicit. <laughs> All right, uh, let's pray. And then um, after that, let's break down the tables quick and meet back here in 10 minutes for singing. Heavenly Father, we again ask that you would Uh, increase our wisdom and our knowledge of understanding of scripture so that we do not err in these ways. Uh, We don't want to fail to make Christian nations if we are indeed supposed to do it in a way that I'm uh, not advocating here. So we pray that you would correct us, help our thinking. Uh, We pray that this wouldn't even have to be a distinction that we have to make because your spirit moves and brings revival and repentance, at least in our country, but obviously we want this in other countries too. Lord, we, we pray for that sort of change to happen to the people of this country so that we don't have to deal with the evils that the government is supporting and we don't have to deal with the wicked laws that they are seeking to implement and we don't have to have the same kind of arguments because christianity is so widespread and celebrated and it spreads throughout the world lord Um, but we know that historically that has not been the case and at the same time historically when the church is oppressed it grows and it strengthens and even though we don't desire suffering and we don't desire opposition, Lord, if it brings you glory, if it strengthens your church, if it protects our faith, if it leads to more conversions, Lord, then we do, we do and indeed pray for that to happen. Uh, we don't want our desire for comfort to prevent us from doing hard things or being in hard situations. So we pray that you would submit our will to yours and guide our thinking Make it biblical, help us to have that wisdom that that leads to the interpolation and extrapolation from what is explicit in scripture. Guide and direct us by the power of your spirit and use us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.